0: I've been very busy filming, um, which is great news, um, and mostly for historic royal palaces, actually. So we are making a new series about Hampton Court Palace, uh, which is usually my office, I like to call it, although in the past 18 months, I haven't been there as much as I would like. And we're also in the middle of filming series four of Inside the Tower of London.
1: Was Tracy Borman, who's taking time out of her very busy schedule to join us to speak about her new book, Crown and Scepter. And she'll also let us know why now is the perfect time to be having this discussion.
0: Well, it's a very exciting time for me because my new book, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy, came out in the UK in November, and it's going to be out in the US at the beginning of February, which is perfect timing because that's exactly the time when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II uh, celebrates her platinum jubilee. So a remarkable 70 years on the throne, and that was really the inspiration for this book, um, just to take a long look back at the history of the British monarchy and place the current Queen's reign into some kind of context, really. So it's been an absolute joy researching it, writing it, um, recently speaking about it, and I can't wait for it to come out in the
1: U.S. uh, early next year. Well, those of us in the U.S. can't wait either. (laughs) So, so many thanks to Tracy Borman for joining us. And I want to just jump right in as you have and, and start by letting people know right at the beginning of the book, which, by the way, those of you in the US who may not be able to manage to wait till February, there are some places, um, Blackwell's and Book Depository, where you can get it from the UK. So just know that because that's what I did. But there <laughs> is a marvelous sort of family tree in the beginning that starts with Egbert, so starts way back in time, and traces all the way to Her Majesty the Queen. And so just take a moment, if you would, please, and tell us what it means that there is this family connection running through this entire history of the monarchy. Well, you're
0: absolutely right. And that's one of the things that makes it unique. The British monarchy has this unbroken line for kind of 12 centuries. And I think that really struck me with that family tree. So I'm very pleased that you picked up on it. Just that sense of continuity, the fact that Elizabeth II can trace her descent to the Anglo-Saxon kings of England, and it's a direct line. And of course, huge amounts have uh, Changed during uh, those centuries, but when it comes to the monarchy, an awful lot has stayed the same. So you just have to look at at Egbert's coronation, the Anglo-Saxon king. The similarity with the ceremony used at his coronation and that used in 1953 for our current queen is quite striking, even down to the music. and And I think that's really what gets me excited about um, the the history of the monarchy, it felt like a living history. The more I was researching it, the more I realised, actually, you only have to look at at much of the ceremony surrounding the crown today to actually see history, you know, in the making and as it would have been centuries before. Uh, So that, for me, was a real shivers down the spine moment, I guess, um, as a historian, just... You've got to, whether you love or loathe the monarchy, you've got to respect that history uh, and and that sense of continuity that it has provided. Uh, it really is quite remarkable.
1: Well, that's a great point. And I know um, a few years ago when I was able to take a tour of Westminster, and they showed us it for the opening of parliament where the door is shut and the knock with the black rod knocks on the door um, and the monarch is allowed to come in and deliver the address and all of those steps mm. that are still enacted or carried out today for the opening of parliament. Um, exactly. And way- just the, those little details, you know, mm-hmm. that
0: as you say, they, they've been employed for hundreds of years. And you might say it's, it's all... Empty and and meaningless, but it does have meaning. It is rooted in history, and you know so many times, and you must be the same. You you wish you could be a fly on the wall back at, say, Mm -hmm. the court of Henry the Eighth or whatever it might be. And these moments, these moments of ceremony, give us that perspective. When you know that something has remained pretty much unchanged for centuries,
1: and it's still happening today, I think that's a real gift. Right, and it is a wonderful opportunity, and to be in those places, um, and know what happened and is still happening in those same places is is really exciting. And yeah, yeah, what a wonderful, yeah. what a wonderful way to look at it. And again, a, a million congratulations on this brilliant book. And I do want to ask a few questions about you know your process and what you learned and. And maybe um, thought about in different ways as you were researching and working on this. And one one of the things I'm wondering about is the monarch's personality, so a queen's or a king's personality. When mm-hmm. did you see times when that made a difference in history? When it's not just the monarchy itself, but it's an it's an individual whose personality really sort of changes history. I'm wondering if there are some times that sort of stand out. That's such a good question because
0: it's it defined the monarchy for at least the first sort of five or six hundred years, it was a personal monarchy. So the personality of the sovereign was all important. Particularly, though, I would highlight um, the reign of Henry VIII. Now, your listeners may say, of course, she would say that, because you know she's <laughs> Tudor mad. But this really was personal monarchy at its zenith, where the king shaped the history of his realm. And of course, Henry VIII was the most stridently self-confident monarch you can possibly think of, in public at least. I think privately he was a, a different man. But in public, he was shaping the identity, not just of the monarchy, but of England. He appointed himself supreme head of a new separate Church of England, uh, breaking from Roman Catholic Europe, which was a huge step. We all get a bit obsessed with Brexit today, but Henry did it 500 years ago. And this was personal monarchy at its height. But the problem was that you know it made it a very very difficult act to follow because you know it so depended from that moment forward on on the personality of the sovereign and of course uh, that is something that's very difficult to control and i think henry's children struggled with that but the child who did best and who emulated and i would say improved on it uh, was elizabeth who has long been uh, the sovereign i have most admired she is still my top monarch. Um, And and she really was another shining example of personal monarchy. Um, But I think she was also a great pragmatist. And I think she'd learned from the mistakes of her father and of her predecessors. But the thing was that that then in the following century and the following dynasty with the Stuarts, Um, The early Stuarts absolutely held true to this personal monarchy and they also believed in the divine right of kings. But that was quite a dangerous belief. I mean, you know, the power of Parliament is something that was beginning to really grow and be realised during the Tudor period. And the Stuarts, rather than working with Parliament, they asserted themselves over Parliament. And of course, that had disastrous effects and, and ultimately led to civil war and the execution of a king, uh, Charles I, in 1649. Whereas the Tudors, they had been very personal monarchs, but they had respected parliament. And, and it, that that relationship is one that I would highlight as being the most important throughout the long history of the monarchy, how effectively a monarch handled parliament was everything really. And ultimately, it was Parliament who won that battle.
1: Well, that's a great way of comparing the Tudors to the Stuarts, at least the early Stuarts, and probably the later, probably the male Stuarts really struggled with Parliament, Mm. I think we could say. I'm Um, pleased you
0: you picked up on that gender issue because it's easy just to sort of lump the Stuarts into that kind of early male Version mm-hmm. of Stuart mm-hmm. monarchy, but Queen Anne mm-hmm. she was brilliant at what I would call PR, really. She she appreciated the need to uphold those sacred traditions of monarchy, even though her political power was eroded. Um, the monarchy was constitutional, it was subject to the authority of parliament. But she knew that people still valued and respected those royal traditions and ceremonies, and she made sure that she upheld them to spectacular effect. So, for example, there was a rather odd ceremony known as touching for the king's evil. And the king's evil was the disease scrofula, a kind of skin condition. And there'd been this ancient ceremony uh, whereby the monarch would sit enthroned and and a succession of his his um, suffering subjects would be brought before him or her and they would lay hands on that that subject and cure them. Apparently, the royal touch would cure scrofula. Now, of course, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> there was the placebo effect. I don't know. It might have worked in one or two cases. It was obviously symbolic, but it was the sort of thing that people really valued and Anne got that in a way that other monarchs hadn't, including her direct predecessors, her sister, Mary, and Mary's husband, William of Orange. They dispense with all of this as being outdated and superstitious nonsense, but thereby disregarding just how much subjects cherished that royal touch, that royal mystique. And I think we're all still obsessed with that. Well, okay, that's a sweeping statement. I think monarchists, and I think those interested in the royals, still have that slight obsession with you know they, they seem separate to us, don't don't mm-hmm. they? they? They they don't seem like mere mortals in the same way as you and
1: I, and I, I think therein lies the fascination. Well, that's that's a great point, and I do I find the Stuarts fascinating in in so many ways, but some of the Stuarts so misunderstood the role of monarchy or the role of parliament or how to get along. And yet Queen Anne got it so well. It's just mm. really interesting within that dynasty yeah, um, how different, and, and a couple of times things really shifted mm.
0: because
1: of a Stuart monarch, which I think is really interesting. I think we don't give Queen Anne yeah. enough attention in many ways. I, I, I
0: agree. And and it, it makes me so mad when she's just dismissed um or characterized as the one who was pregnant seventeen times. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the least or one of the least significant parts of her, her reign. Yes, it led to, you know, change ultimately in, in the succession and, and an end of a dynasty, but she shouldn't be defined by her many pregnancies really I think as you say she got it she got it she fulfilled her constitutional role perfectly she was very dedicated to her royal duties and her constitutional duties but she also got that mystique that PR that she understood what people valued and wanted and and so yeah we we shouldn't just think of Anne as the one who was always pregnant or as, or indeed as the one who was dominated by her her favorites
1: mm-hmm. um, there, was, there was a lot more to her than that right right I think that's a, that's a really good point, and i I find her to be fascinating. I really enjoy learning more about her, so that 's great. Thank you now, speaking of this whole Stuart period because there are some really important changes, and one of them, as you already mentioned, was the execution of a king. And I think sometimes we uh, miss the significance of that. I mean, that was such a huge moment and parliament took over and there was not going to be any more monarchy, but that didn't last. And so I wonder after Oliver Cromwell died and his son took over, and he actually is pretty interesting. Um, not, not that he's a monarch, but he sort of seemed to be as close to a monarch as he could get. I mean, he wanted to be called your highness and he wanted his son to take over for him. And But anyway, it didn't work. And Parliament decided to invite Charles II back to become king. Why do you think yeah. that happened and and this notion of, a, of not having a monarchy didn't take? I, it's so interesting, isn't it,
0: um, that... You know, this this was a real opportunity. That this it was a turning point in in British history. We were going to be a Commonwealth, and and we'd got rid of a, a monarch. That was a very drastic step to, to you know to execute an anointed king, and and that should have been the end of the story and the beginning of the story of centuries of Commonwealth. Now I'm going to draw a comparison here because um here in London for the millennium if you can cast your minds back to the millennium uh, we uh, we built this dome and uh, it's now the O2 center and it houses concerts and it's become a success but in the millennium there was a huge focus on building this dome this was going to be the big statement piece for the millennium but it's, so it's a huge dome in Greenwich in 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 London southeast london um but nobody really thought what to put in it so all the focus was on building this dome, and then it and then it was completed, and then they had to very quickly think, oh god, what are we going to fill it with? And it was a mess. It was a mess, quite frankly. Much as I love um, London and wanted to support it, you know, there were a, a series of kind of failed things that went into it. It was a it was a bit of a disappointment, and I would draw a comparison between that and the Commonwealth. All the focus had been on building the Commonwealth, getting rid of the King, but not with what to replace the King with, not the actual substance of that, of the Commonwealth. Oliver Cromwell and his parliamentarian supporters very effectively and very ruthlessly managed to wipe out the monarchy, but then what did they replace it with? And as you say, what they replaced it with was pretty much a monarchy. In all but name, uh, Oliver Cromwell was styled Oliver P. Um, in, in for protector in the same way as a king would be. You know, Charles R. for Rex, uh, a king. He was served as a king. He was offered the crown. He did turn it down. But but, you know, and as you say, then it, it almost became hereditary. It passed to his ineffectual son Richard, and so it it basically completely mirrored. The monarchy, and it's it's almost, there is a real sense that they just hadn't thought through. Okay, we're going to get through, get rid of the king. What are we going to replace him with? And that's the bit they hadn't thought through. And I think if they had thought it through better, if they had focused on the after, and and what was going to come after the monarchy, then perhaps we wouldn't have had the restoration and Charles II coming to the throne in 1660 and, and Parliament inviting back. Uh, the monarchy. I don't think we'd have had that actually. So I'm deeply grateful that that actually it did fail because, as a royal historian, we'd have missed out on another 400 years almost of of royal history if they had got their act
1: together. Well, and it's interesting because they, they it's almost as if they tried the setup of the monarchy without the mystique and the magic and the family mm-hmm. tradition and and the history mm. and. That didn't work. So exactly. They- I think they dismissed that as being irrelevant.
0: Um, a later commentator described all of that kind of thing as as froth and saccharin. You know, it's, it's all just it's meaningless. Um anybody who believes in all of that, you know, clearly that they, they need their head examining. They underestimated the power of all of that and how Much people valued it. Uh, And so it was a sort of empty crown that they gave them. They gave them a a leader in Oliver Cromwell and then then his son. Um, But it wasn't enough just to have a sort of political leader with none of the mystique, none of the sense of the God-given power. Now, that is crucial. In this God-fearing age, uh, Then to have a monarch who God has appointed. And all of that... Is reinforced at the coronation with the with the anointing, um, and that really mattered to people. The idea that you know God has put this person on the throne, and then of course that was all lost because Oliver Cromwell hadn't been appointed by God; he, he'd executed a king. Um, so, so that sort of sense of of the sort of mystical and the religious aura surrounding the crown that was lost now. And Mm -hmm. it was impossible to replace it with anything other than the son of the anointed king who'd been executed.
1: Right. That's such a good point. And I think the crown jewels, referring to the title of your wonderful book, Crown and Scepter, which Charles II uh, insisted a time passed before his coronation so they could be recreated. So those crown jewels could be rebuilt after Cromwell and the others melted them down, which is just so horrible to think about, and took out the jewels and sold things off. He wanted yes. those jewels back. That was such an important part
0: of was the good. presence
1: of the monarchy. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah, it was that's such an important. important part. That symbolism after the crown jewels had been melted down by Oliver Cromwell and that symbolism that Charles II, he he got it as well. He, he understood mm-hmm. this uh throughout his reign he he always employed kind of symbolism and and cherished the the ceremony um that he knew was essential to the cr- to the crown and and commissioning a dazzling new set of crown jewels you know that was a moment the monarchy is back it might have been emasculated as one historian put <laughs> it by the the kind of terms of the restoration which really deprived the monarchy of political power uh, but, but it still had that aura. It had that mystique and that was now expressed in this glittering new set of, of coronation regalia.
1: So that brings us to a good, to another question. Um, when this restoration happened and the mystique was returned, even if the power was, you know, not the same, that's mm-hmm. a really important turning point for yeah. the monarchy, for the history of the monarchy. What other, Moments do you see as being turning points? Yeah, where things maybe go in a different direction.
0: I think again, um, I'm so pleased you've highlighted these Stuarts because again, it's the Stuart period, and it's not long after the Restoration. Um, I would say it was in 1689, so um, 1688. Is the Glorious Revolution, as it was called. So, James II was the brother of Charles II, and he was his successor because Charles II, much as he loved the ladies and had all of these (laughs) numerous illegitimate children, he didn't have a legitimate child. So, the throne passed to his brother, James. Now, James. Wasn't willing to play ball. He didn't want to be dominated by Parliament. He wasn't very pragmatic and he was a Catholic. Now, this was intolerable uh, to Parliament because um, part of the terms of inviting the monarchy back is that they wanted a Protestant monarchy, uh, not a Catholic one. Well, James II, to give him credit, you know, he's always dismissed as, as this kind of tyrant. Actually, he was very, very tolerant. But the fact that personally he had Catholic beliefs was unsupportable for Parliament. So um, they invited uh, James's daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange, to come and take the throne because women, William and Mary were devout Protestants. But actually, it was quite a small minority who did that. Quite often in history you find this. It's it's presented as being the will of the people actually it was the will of a small faction, a Protestant faction in Parliament, who invited William and Mary to take the throne. And a, a series of unfortunate events for James II meant that, that they succeeded and he fled to exile. So that was 1688. But the really pivotal moment came the following year, because this is effectively when William and Mary had to sign on the dotted line. They had to sign this contract with Parliament, known as the Bill of Rights. And this was the moment when Parliament made absolutely sure that from this time onwards, it was a constitutional monarchy. There would never be another tyrant on the throne. Um, The monarchy would have no political power. And also the monarchy would be Protestant. And so that had an effect that reverberated down the centuries. And and it really brought an end to the Stuarts because we mentioned um, Queen Anne, the last of the Stuarts. She didn't have any children. Now, you could say that the throne could have gone back to James II and his descendants. He had sons, they had sons, but the problem was they were all Catholic. So the Bill of Rights, having said that it had to be a Protestant monarch, um, ensured that we went from the Stuarts to the Hanoverians, which was the next best thing. The electors of Hanover, um, Sophia, Doroth, sorry, Sophia, the electress of Hanover, was descended from James I, so, and she was Protestant. So there was this kind of sideways move. The monarchy went uh, from this quite strong bloodline to a watered-down bloodline, I think it's fair to say, all thanks to the Bill of Rights in 1689, and and you know they're still on the throne. Our, our royal family today still has this this very strong German uh,
1: kind of heritage. All thanks to to that moment, right? And and that brings us a a great way to the creation of the House of Windsor, which mm. is actually a renaming. <laughs> of some of the descendants of the Hanoverians. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because the Windsors are on the throne now, but as you say, they're really part of another dynasty.
0: They are. That was a bit of rebranding on the part of Mm -hmm. the crown um, because it was the house of of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, you know, very very German sounding Mm -hmm. house, which was a problem when we had World War One, um, and and obviously we were at war with Germany, and the royal family came in for a lot of criticism, thanks to uh, its its very strong German characteristics and the fact that the monarch, for you know the past couple of centuries, had married a German bride. It had a German name, so George V decided to put this to right. Um, he was very very conscious that the monarchy had a role to play in the sort of war effort. So in 1917, he decided to uh, change the name of the royal house from uh, Saxe-Coburg, Gotha to Windsor, because Windsor is quintessentially English, you know, Windsor Castle, you think mm-hmm. of all the, the kind of Order of the Garter, and it is it's very, very English, or British, rather. And so that's what George V um, decided to do. So it was, it was from that moment, really, that it was rebranded. And I love the um, remark made by uh, Kaiser Wilhelm um, of, of Germany, who, when he heard of this, he said he would look forward to seeing a production of The Merry Wives of Saxe-Coburg Gotha. <laughs> oh, That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and that's not bad as a comeback.
1: <laughs> well, he, he shared Queen Victoria as their ancestor. I mean, yes. who really um, is at the helm when she's grandmother of oh. Europe? I mean, just a, a
0: extraordinary. Nine children she had, uh, 42 grandchildren, And eighty-seven great grandchildren. And she made sure to marry her children and their children, their children, into the royal families of Europe. So it was with good reason that she was called the grandmother of Europe. Pretty much everybody Mm -hmm. was related (laughs) to Victoria.
1: Yes. And there are some of images of those families, and I think of George V and the Tsar and how much they looked like each other, and yes, the tragic way all that played out because they were so closely related. Exactly, and that wasn't always a good thing, was it? You know, it did right. lead to these
0: conflicts of uh, of interest and loyalty mm-hmm. when when Europe was starting to head for war. There is that striking photograph, isn't there? It's probably the one yes. you're thinking of of George V um, with with Tsar Nicholas. They mm-hmm. look like
1: twins, don't yes. they? It's yes. quite remarkable. Yes. And and you just think of there's this happy moment they're together and you think of what yeah. where the history goes and it's very oh, sad. It's, it's incredibly sad. It's tragic. Uh yes. Well, let's move on to some um current happenings as as the Queen prepares <laughs> for her platinum jubilee, which is so exciting. And so in addition to being the longest reigning monarch of Great Britain. She also is so adaptable. If you think Mm -hmm. of the changes that have happened since she took the throne in the 1950s to today, the world changes, the political changes, the economic changes, and some of the challenges that have popped up right in her own family. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where she's had the biggest challenges, to be fair. (laughs) Yes. So how has she managed to remain such a beloved figure and when i hear people talk about oh we've had enough of the monarchy but after the queen i mean everyone seems to think don't touch the queen yes even those calling you know for a whole rethinking just really seem to admire respect oh. adore in many cases the queen how has she managed that over you all are these years so right how has she managed that and and
0: because i have Talk to lots of Republicans um, over the years. My husband is a rampant Republican. <laughs> he thinks we should just get rid of the, the monarchy. Um, but he and every other person of that point of view agree that um, the Queen is great. So as you say, it's like, let's look beyond the Queen. They all love the, even those who hate the monarchy, they love the Queen or they respect her. And I think that's the thing. She has been a constant. And she has provided that valuable sense of continuity in a rapidly changing, often frightening world. And I think what people respect about the Queen is her dedication to duty. Now, that is something I think she inherited from her father. She learned from her father, George VI, who took the throne out of duty when his brother, Edward Eighth abdicated. And so duty has been the watchword of our Queen's reign. And compare her to Queen Victoria, so obviously they they both lost beloved uh, consorts, beloved husbands um, but when Victoria lost Albert, she gave up her public royal duties for more than a decade. When the Queen earlier this year lost uh, Prince Philip, she was back at her duties after four days and and I think you can 't help but respect that that this is a woman in her mid nineties and yes, she has recently had to to kind of cede some of her duties uh to her son Charles and her grandson William, but to still be doing any duties at all you know, right is is quite amazing and and I think duty has been the defining characteristic of her reign, and I think that's why she commands so much respect and so much affection
1: well, and people seem to be so thrilled when she is able to appear.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: do her duties, whether it's on video. And I know some of her appearances have been on video. Or her message to the country during COVID got yes. huge response. So she yes. really represents such an important duty-bound, duty-driven life. Um, exactly. She really does, and I, I think people really still
0: value that. And and that's what I was thinking when when you mentioned the pandemic. There, um, it, it is a frightening. It is a frightening world, um, and um, just that reassurance that, that she's been able to give, it's the same reassurance that her, her father uh, was able to give during World War II and George V before him during the First World War. Just that sense of, of comfort of um, there are some things that don't change, and I think, I think we all need a bit of a sense of that sometimes.
1: Right. Right, and it reminds me as well of the Queen's mother, also named Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and during World War II, how she so publicly stayed in London and made that proclamation that the children wouldn't leave unless she did, and yes. she wouldn't leave unless the King did, and the King would not leave under any yes. circumstances whatsoever. Yes, yes. So yes, wonderful. Exactly. and Isn't then. It? she went and visited the areas that had been bombed and you know hitler considered her the most dangerous woman in europe to his yeah. goals yeah that sense of what she represented what the family represented yeah in difficult times i think is is so powerful and i think the queen the current queen certainly gets that from both parents and that's really so yeah. wonderful. That's such a good point, actually. It's, yeah, it,
0: certainly, as I mentioned, from her father, but her mother too. And, and she was. A trooper, for want of a better word. I mean, she really was, and and actually, you know, she she said that famous sort of line about being glad when Buckingham Palace was was bombed so that she mm-hmm. could look the East End of London in the face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the area that was worst hit by the by the Blitz, and yeah, talk about Blitz spirit. Uh, she yeah. had it in abundance, and so so what what role models really for the Queen? There's little wonder that she is still dedicated to her duties uh, in her mid-90s.
1: Yes, and, and what? yes, such a, a remarkable legacy she has and she has carried out on her own. Mm, mm, which, absolutely. Which makes me wonder what you think, if this is a fair question, maybe not, but what do you <laughs> think the monarchy will look like over the next 10 to 20 years?
0: Yeah, isn't it? Interesting and difficult as well. Um, what well, impossible to predict. But um, what I think and hope is, you know, the Queen has lit the way for her successors. Um, there's a lot of talk over here in the UK about, you know, what's the relevance, what's the purpose of, of the monarchy? It's not really got that much of a political role they can advise, they can encourage, um, but, you know, they, they can't even vote you know so they have less political power than their subjects but where I think the monarchy absolutely has an integral role to play um it's twofold um on the one hand as an advocate for good causes and i think that's something that gives me hope for the future because prince charles has been flying the flag for environmental causes for a very long time and he used to be laughed at for it for it but right. people are now taking him seriously uh, because of course this has been pushed much higher up the agenda and ditto his son william is also a real campaigner for environmental causes so i think the monarchy can absolutely shine a light on the causes that really matter. And secondly, I think its role as, as a sort of, um, head of charity, as a, as a head of philanthropy can really be something, uh, that forms an incredibly valuable contribution. The Queen is patron of more than 600 charities, and the directors of those charities are in absolutely no doubt. If you have a royal patron, it doesn't just double your income. You know, it increases tenfold, sometimes a hundredfold. So that that philanthropic role, I think, is is key to the future as well. Um, So even if with Charles and, and perhaps with his son William, We have a monarch that isn't, you know, quite uh, out of the same mold as Elizabeth II in terms of that kind of constancy, that, you you know, that unflinching, um, uncontroversial, Mm. I think just advocacy and charity. If they stay true to those, then the monarchy, I think, still has a very pertinent role to play long into the future. That's
1: wonderful. I am really encouraged by that. (laughs) Oh that's, I hope that's what happens. Thank you. Can we ask what you're working on now? I know you're doing a, an awful lot of filming about Hampton yep. Court and about the tower. What else are you working on? So I am hoping that
0: uh, you're going to be pleased when I tell you that my next nonfiction book, uh, which is out next year, um, and it's out in the States as well, hurrah, um, is going to be about Anne Boleyn. Um, and it's going to be about Anne and her daughter Elizabeth. So this is a whole book just exploring their relationship. Now, obviously, they only lived together or at the same time for less than three years. That's Elizabeth was two years and eight months old when Anne was executed, but their relationship had. A profound impact on Elizabeth for the rest of her life. It shaped her queenship. So this book will explore both women, but um, as a sort of interconnected story. So it's not a dual biography. It's purely about their relationship, the impact it had, and and really how this relationship changed the whole course of history. Elizabeth was Anne's ultimate triumph. It's history's greatest irony that Henry VIII mm-hmm. was devastated when Anne Boleyn gave him a daughter. He'd gone to all this trouble to marry her and she just had a daughter. Little did he know that that daughter would go on to be by far his most successful heir and and you know realizing all of her mother Anne Boleyn's ambitions. So it's an absolute joy to be researching this subject. I feel like Anne Boleyn is following my every move at the moment. I'm I'm spending <laughs> a lot of time with Anne Boleyn. And as I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth is my all-time historical heroine. So what a joy, what an absolute joy um, I am finding this.
1: Well, I had heard that before. And so I am thrilled and eager for any, any mention of this upcoming book. So thank you for letting us know about that. That's so exciting. and. I cannot wait. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Now,
0: obviously, obviously, I would love to come back and talk to you about it once it's out. (laughs) Oh, good. I was
1: just going to ask. So, (laughs) So now a reminder to everyone as we're waiting for the new book that we do have this marvelous book right now, Crown and Scepter, out soon in the States, out in February, which is the month that the Queen will celebrate her Platinum Jubilee. So it could not be more timely. But if um, you're just too impatient, again, you can reach out to some British publishers for Crown and Scepter. Now, I believe that the audio version will be out in the States around that same time. And Mm -hmm. did I hear correctly that you are reading the audio version?
0: You did hear correctly. And I'm delighted to say so. This is the first of my books that I have personally narrated. Um, So I think it's my 14th book and it's taken me until now um, to to record one. And I was quite daunted about it. I mean, quite apart from anything else, it's, it's a long book. (laughs) So, you know, kind of just under 500 pages. And so, um, but I loved it. I loved doing that narration myself. It was a real privilege. And I saw the book in a different light because usually you know you see it on screen you're fed up of the sight of it by the time you <laughs> finally finished it there have been edits and copy edits but reading it brought the story alive in in a different way for me so yes it is is my own voice uh, that that listeners
1: uh, will hear and and i really really hope that people enjoy it well, that is wonderful. And I know for a personal fact that you can pre-order that on Audible right now. <laughs> and I have.
0: You're you're great. You are got <laughs> Yeah, I need to start paying you commission because you you're you you know all of this and it's fantastic. So thank you for letting your listeners know.
1: Well, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled with all of this news. And I want to thank you, Tracy Borman, for spending this time with us for taking us through all of this history in your wonderful book, the turning points in the monarchy and the way that the English and British monarchy have survived and adapted and continued to be relevant in different ways. And for sharing these exciting new discoveries about Anne Boleyn and your new book on Anne and Elizabeth. We just can't wait. And I know I just can't wait. So <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us,
0: Carolina. It's been the greatest possible pleasure. Time never goes so fast as when I'm chatting with you, so um, I've I've hugely enjoyed it. So thank you ever so much for having me back. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you so much to Tracy Borman for joining us and sharing so many wonderful stories about history, about the monarchy, all the way from William the Conqueror to Her Majesty the Queen. My mom always told me to try and make January a month of favorites, and we are off to a great start. Thank you so much for listening, and let's keep shaking up history together.